Welcome to the Lubber's Hole. This is the Patrick O'Brien podcast, where Ian and Mike are rereading the Aubrey Matra novels of our favourite writer, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, where had we got to last week and where might our reading take us this week? Yes, Ian, last week in chapter seven, Stephen and Martin took a pistol ball out of Jack's back, you know, after that Diane cutting out thing. And they treated this, you know, all the other wounds that Jack had received here. Unfortunately, despite Jack's popularity and these splendid victories that he's now had one right after another, he still doesn't have quite enough support to be restored to the Navy list. And mm. so, yeah, so Joseph Blaine is thinking that, you know, he really needs to make a move right now because if, if he doesn't seize this opportunity before he leaves for South America, everybody's going to kind of forgotten these victories. And he suggests that Jack might miss his restoration tide, if you will. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, the tide being in his favor to be restored to that list. So Blaine organized a dinner party with the injured Jack as the guest of honor. And, you know, they win over enough swing votes. But the next day, when a ministry official approached Jack about seeking a pardon to start the process, Jack refused, saying he had committed no crime and therefore needs no pardon. Well, so... We kind of, you know, oh, this is this is not good. So Sir Joseph and Stephen this week are trying to determine if there's any other way to have Jack restored. We're, you know, we had kind of lost General Aubrey for a while. Well, in this chapter, General Aubrey is found again. Jack mm-hmm. has a homecoming back to his ancestral home, and Stephen heads for Sweden. Uh, We've been talking about reversals a lot, you know, ever since the last book, and the reversals continue. And this week, they're pocket burrows, hungry dogs, dirty puddings, and Figaro, just before we hear the Day of Wrath, which usually is heard in a Requiem Mass. Oh, Mike, there's going to be lots to work on this week. So, Mike, we start this chapter face-to-face with Sir Joseph Blaine. He does a great little bit of recap and exposition for us, just in case we can't remember what was happening on the previous page. We get this. He has missed his tide, said Sir Joseph. I have rarely been more vexed. Soames handled the matter like a fool, said Stephen. If only he had taken it lightly, if only he had started talking about the daily civil lies of not at home, humble obedient servant and so on, had then moved on to the various face-saving formulae of treaties and the like, treating them as the silly unimportant trifles they are, and had then asked Aubrey to put his name to the solicitation, already and made out, he might well have signed with a thankful heart, a heart overflowing with happiness. And Stephen and Sir Joseph both regretting the way this has been handled. Mike, I think Stephen is a little bit optimistic. I have a feeling that Jack's moral code on this runs deep enough that even even some soft soap beforehand might not have helped. But it certainly wasn't wasn't great. It was pretty clumsy. And Sir Joseph goes on to remark that the balance was just about leaning in Aubrey's favour. And he's really anxious that this balance might not be so reliable and might not swing so consistently in favour of Jack. Blaine asks Stephen if Jack might reconsider, given that most sailors have 
meant to be, to be okay with cheerful corruption and all this business of entering your half-brother's name on a ship's books to gain sea time. That's something that Jack is already doing. Stephen says it's now become a high moral issue and there's none of that cheerfulness. And Stephen puts the question back to Blaine and asks whether Jack might not be put back on the list as an act of grace, I think meaning an act of grace by the monarch, uh, with no request for a pardon. And Blaine says Jack doesn't have the support for that, even though, here's where we learn what happened to General Aubrey, even though Jack's father has been found dead. Now, there's a silver lining in this, which is that this is the chance for Jack to break the connection with the radical influences of his father, but it's not going to be enough. Right. Well, Stephen, sitting here talking to Sir Joseph Blaine, is getting ready to head to Leith to take the packet to Sweden. We've known this journey to deliver the Blue Diamond, the Blue Peter Diamond, has been coming. But as he's getting ready to go, Blaine's wondering if Jack's father's death and this estate that Jack will inherit is going to change Jack's mind about the South American mission. And Stephen says he does not think so especially since they've heard that the French have already sent one or two frigates around the horn. So he thinks that even with the estate, I think Stephen says, even even if he'd inherited half the county, he'd still be anxious to head for South America. Ah, So we change scenes. Jack is now at Woolhampton for his father's funeral. And Jack is pleased and surprised at how many people have come. You know, his, his father had put off a lot of people there, but Jack sees old friends, Aubrey family connections, tenants, villagers, folks from outlying cottages. And, you know, O'Brien tells us that they seem to have set aside the general's ill treatment. Jack's especially moved by how many village women have come and prepared the general's home, which had already run down before his father was kind of on the run from the law. And he notes that the general's second wife, this dairy maid that General mm-hmm. Aubrey had married late in life, hadn't actually helped at all. She'd stayed in her bed and, and that actually no one believes she's there because of grief. And so there are all kinds of theories about why she's there. But Jack remembers this dairy maid and she was a woman that was well known to local young men, O'Brien tells us, including <laughs> Jack. So. So even though Jack occasionally was wounded by seeing her in his mother's place, he really had never thought of her as a bad woman. I mean, he knew her. He liked her. And so, you know, Jack's Jack's okay with this and he's not buying into this. You know, the reason she's in her bed is because she's got the family silver underneath it and she's going to run off with it. You know, and, and they've been very kind and gracious here. Sophie, who's now, of course, with Jack's inheritance, the new mistress of Woolcombe House, this you know, his ancestral home did not come as a courtesy to the current mistress. She didn't want him to feel like that, you know, she's being kicked out here. And Jack's half brother, this very young Philip, General Aubrey's son by his second marriage here, has been brought back home from school. Now, Philip is young. He he actually thought that perhaps this was a celebration <laughs> that they're coming together for. But O'Brien tells us that he quickly follows Jack's lead. And, you know, as they walk around the gathering and thank the guests for their kindness in coming. And Mike, I really love this description of the wake. It's it's an odd bit of familiarity. It's got this very cozy, almost kind of soap opera feel where with Jack's family, Jack, his, his, his hometown family, if you like, Right. And his former neighbors, and there are these little petty 
petty fallings out and petty reconciliations. It's much more kind of kitchen sink feeling than any of the gatherings that we've had elsewhere. I, I could almost imagine this being, you know, a, a, a similar occasion in my family or your family. It's, I don't know. I can't describe why it gets me that way, but it has this very, very familiar feeling. But what that means is I feel like I'm learning more about Jack. I feel like I know a bit more about him and where he's placed in the world of English society because I already know really well where he's placed in the Navy and I know really well where he's placed in his friendship with Stephen. But this is something new. Anyhow, um, Jack is getting on well with his half-brother, Philip. And Jack, by the way, in earlier in this book, has had to figure out how to get along with his illegitimate son, Sam, right. to, to both of their credits. And Jack, again, to his credit, is getting along well with young Philip. He feels a bit responsible for him. As Stephen has already mentioned to us, he's entered Philip's name in a number of different ships. He's got Henry Dundas agreeing to take him to see when he's old enough, if Philip should want to go. And Jack is just thinking about Philip when a guest who had been understandably missing from the church service arrives at the house just before the meal. And Mike, this is going to be an important person for Jack. Mm -hmm. This is Mr. Norton. Mr. Norton is a significant landowner. We learn that he's a longtime friend of the family, and they refer to him as Cousin Edward. And Mike, I'm not entirely sure whether he's actually familiarly a cousin of Jack's or not, in the way that, you know, we, we all have aunties who aren't really our aunties. Right. But meanwhile, we learn that Cousin Edward had nominated Jack's father to Parliament for the pocket borough of Millport, which is part of Cousin Edward's estates. We should come back to what a pocket borough is in a moment. But this is a really important turn for Jack. Jack's father had started out as a Tory and had become radical. And we learn, we've already heard many times about how um, Jack's father, General Aubrey, had been a bit of a pain in the house to the government. Um, he had really, the general had been pursuing whatever suited his personal interests. And his conduct had greatly distressed the folks back home, the electors in Millport. And that's why Jack had not expected to see Cousin Edward here, because I think Jack supposed that the, the electors of Millport had pretty much cut ties with the Aubrey family altogether. But not so. So, Mike, pocket boroughs, this is a, this is a hark back to a very ancient piece of the way the British political system used to work, isn't it? Yeah, and, and perhaps a uh, <laughs> a glance into how the U.S. political system may work again soon one day. <laughs> <laughs> so, a, in the U.K., a pocket borough is a borough in which the election of a political representative is controlled by one person or family, and and that that pocket comes from kind of the the phrase that the patron, whoever controls these votes, kind of has these votes in his pocket. Hence, pocket borough. Now. Yeah. In 1832, and then again in 1867, England passed laws that that put this thing away. You can't do yeah, this yeah. anymore here. But um, it was a thing back then, Ian, and and a thing that uh, perhaps ties our hero back to his uh, his counterpart, right? Yeah, absolutely. So once again, we don't have that anymore. Although drawing of constituency boundaries is still subject to political influence and, you know, uh, and, and all that kind of thing. But we have reasonably free and fair elections. We have universal suffrage. This wasn't the case back in the early 19th century. A couple of interesting parallels. First of all, the name of Millport seems to be fictional, but there was a real pocket borough uh, in Somerset called Millbourne Port, and it elected or returned uh, in 1812 an army officer called Edward Paget, who we can only presume had done some kind of a deal. Um, to be invited to be the uh, to be the member, our hero Thomas Cochrane 
had a political career as well. And back in 1806, Thomas Cochrane had stood as a candidate for what they call a potwalloper constituency. Potwalloper constituency is one where it's not completely in the pocket of one elector, um, but the, the electors are basically everybody who can wallop a pot, which meant every male tradesman. And those people were very uh, amenable to selling their votes. And Cochrane had stood in 1806 on a platform of reform of the parliamentary system. He'd lost in his campaign to be elected for this constituency of Honiton in Devon, but did actually later admit in his career that he had himself in this election campaign paid money to a local fixer who could get him some votes. So even Thomas Cochrane um, wasn't immune to the dodgy political foibles of the time. Um, Cochrane was apparently reasonably transparently and fairly later elected uh, for the for the seat of Westminster, and he held that seat for a while. Um, he was dismissed from Parliament when the stock exchange fraud trial happened, um, but was re-elected by the constituents of Westminster, who just really liked him. So there's a little Cochrane echo here as well. That's right. Ah, yeah. This is this is what happens when we confuse ends and means. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Cousin Edward apologizes for his lateness. It, you know, it wasn't that he meant to miss the church service. His coach had overturned along the way. And after dinner, he, he, you know, he stays at the house overnight as his coach is repaired. And as, you know, after Cousin Edward has retired, Jack is talking with Philip about that, you know, saying that Cousin Edward and, you know, their grandfather, Jack and Philip's grandfather, were contemporaries. You know, they were great friends that knew each other at school growing up. They owned hounds together. They hunted hares. And Philip asked Jack about his contemporaries. This is a new word, a new concept for Philip. Yeah. And Jack says that he is very few by land since he went to sea when he was just a little older than Philip. And there's this this fabulous line here that, you know, Philip turns to Jack and he says, but you do feel at home here, sir, do you not? Uh, and and you know, O'Brien tells us that Philip's a little anxious, perhaps even a little distressed as he's asking that. He says, you do feel that this is a place you cannot be turned out of. And mm-hmm. then O'Brien writes, yes, said Jack, not only to please him. And now I am going to look at the vine house and the walled garden. I used to play fives, left hand against right, on the back of it when I was a boy. Yet now I come to reflect, since we are brothers, you should probably call me Jack, although I am so much older. Philip said yes and blushed. Ah, it's a lovely moment, isn't it? It's great. Yeah, we, you know, we've got. Philip here, just a little bit older than Jack's son, you know, and this is kind of, for me, echoes back a little bit to just a few chapters back when Jack's thinking about how much his children's opinion means to him, you know, kind of an echo to this evolving relationship, this different relationship he's had with midshipmen over the years, especially the youngsters, um, how, you know, sometimes Jack sees the world and tries to shape the world in terms of how perhaps he wished it had worked for him in his yeah, youth. Yeah. And perhaps now, you know, giving Philip a little bit of the fatherly influence that perhaps he wished General Aubrey had given him. So, you know, I, I, I we've talked recently about all these opportunities for Jack to gain greater perspective, you know, thinking that he yeah, was yeah. dying, being thrown out of the Navy list, you know, all this increasing self-awareness you know, I, I would expect to see this kind of thing in somebody. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's clearly not a Stephen Dill moment 
but for me, it was very poignant and very touching. It, it is lovely, isn't it? And there's a nice contrast between Jack and relationships with children and Stephen. Stephen's got this natural, he's kind of playmates to everybody in the world, whether right. they're young or old, um, if they share his interests and he can get talking with them. So Dill was a very, very natural, spontaneous connection for him to make. And Jack is much more conscious about it and he's much more about the role of the parent and he's much more kind of, therefore, a bit more awkward and a bit more, more mannered. You know, perhaps you should call me Jack. You know, that's a very that's a very awkward male British way to go about striking up a relationship with your half brother. <laughs> Whereas Stephen would have just sat down cross legged and you know talked to the kid about sparrows or something, right? Um, but both of them are fine. You know, their their characters are being illustrated for us in the way that they they create these relationships with children, and it's really nice. And probably also re- reflects something very very touching and very important for Patrick O'Brien. And we've talked about that before as well, right? Yeah. Well. You know, we were talking earlier and, you know, here's Jack kind of reliving his childhood in part of this house. And, mm. you know, it's it's really neat, too, because, you know, we remember a, a few books back, um, General Aubrey had completely redone the house and, you know, <laughs> including wiping out Jack's bedroom. And I think Jack, you know, kind of felt like he no longer had a place here. And here's Philip and Jack back to where you know, this was, you know, kind of the way it was when he was a kid here. And now looking at it through Philip's eyes again. I love that. Yeah, it is lovely. Um, they, they they go around the house. They look at the, the stone fountain, the tame frog, the kitchen garden, the smelly box hedges, all of which strike a chord with Jack. And the text says, indeed, the whole back of the house, stable yard, laundry, coach house, all the unimproved part was infinitely familiar, reaching back to the first things Jack had ever known as familiar as cock crow, so that at moments he might have been far younger than the little boy running about in his incongruous black suit. And a nice little image there of the tall naval officer and the little boy in the black suit, and actually which one is the child here? Right, right. Jack, we remember, had been quite upset by the fact that so much of the house had been redone um, to suit his, his stepmother's taste. And now Jack's got this nice chance to go back. It's very pointed that O'Brien refers to the unimproved bits of the house because Jack goes to those parts to reconnect to his past uh, in a better way. And with his father gone, like we're not being mawkish about it, but with his father gone, he's got a, he's got a clearer shot at uh, making a connection to the place and making a connection to the rest of the family. And I, I really like this. This is more more of insight into Jack's backstory. You know, neither of these characters has had great big gushing acres of backstory presented to him at, 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 at any point in the canon. Right. And we've got these very sort of mundane but touching scenes from Jack's childhood. Makes him really real for me, I think. And this is this has been a book for growing and restoring Jack as a character bit by bit. And uh, I have a feeling we're going to see some growth and restoration for Sophie in a few paragraphs time as well. But that's for later. So the next morning, Cousin Edward comes down, he greets Jack, and, and he says that he hopes that the you know this long stay of this Dorchester attorney that morning didn't mean disputes or wrangling. He had, you know, he had seen this guy arrive, and then, you know, by the time he comes down, he was just leaving. And you know, Jack did not tell him that much of the delay was due to his stepmother not wanting them to know that she didn't know how to sign her name. <laughs> So uh, you know, Jack suggests with Cousin Edward that they have a pot of coffee, they go into the morning room, and Edward says that he can no longer find his way around the house because it's changed so much. So again, we, you know, we kind of have this echo again that 
this was once this place that Edward loved, that Jack loved, that Albrey had completely, General Albrey completely changed it so much. And Jack now says that he intends to put it back the way it was when he was a boy. And Edward kind of perks up. He says, oh, Jack, you know, are you planning to live here? And, and Jack says, well, that's kind of up to Sophie. And Edward says that he's really happy that Jack will have at least, as he says, one foot in the county. And then O'Brien tells us that Edward's tone changes. It's, it's kind of like he's speaking words that he's rehearsed or perhaps he's changed several times, trying to decide just how to say it. And he's is a little nervous. And he says that many folks, probably including Jack, were, were surprised to see him here yesterday at the wake. And that while he doesn't want to blackguard Jack's father, everybody knows how General Aubrey had treated Edward. But he says he's come because of what's due to the family, given his friendship with Jack's grandfather, his love of Jack's mother. And then he says, and O'Brien writes, yet even more to mark my sense of what was due to you for your splendid feat at St. Martin's, and even more for the damnable injustice you met with in London. Boy, and this is, you know, I'm I'm kind of, you know, the stirring music can rise, and I'm like, yes, you know, we're seeing. Yeah, we get the, there's, there's this really nice drum roll. Um, we, we're interrupted for a moment by Philip. Right. I love how Philip, like, like every child interrupts at a tricky moment. Uh, Philip pops in, um, the chase has come to take him back to the school, and Jack sees him off. And there's this really, really nice touching moment um, as they say farewell to each other. And we've had a little fragment of them sort of setting up a relationship and it's just paid off a little bit here. Jack offers Philip a guinea and Philip thanks him very much and says he'd rather have something of Jack's, a pencil end or an old handkerchief or a piece of paper with his name written on it to show the fellows at school. And Jack, presumably on the spur of the moment, reaches into his waistcoat pocket and hands over a pistol ball, the pistol ball that Stephen had taken out of his back and says that if Philip's mother can spare him over the next holidays, he would love to have Philip in Hampshire to meet his nephew and nieces. And there's this slight awkwardness over the fact that the nephew and nieces are actually older than him. (laughs) Philip and Jack wave at each other until the chase turns the corner. And there's this really nice moment of setting up here a connection between Jack and Philip. And ah, now what, what was cousin Edward talking about again? Yeah, yeah. So so we get back, you know, Jack walks back in here and cousin Edward says that he hopes Jack will be staying a little while, you know, if only for the sake of his wounds. And Jack says, no, no, he's fine. You know, his physicians cleared him to travel and the surprise is fitting out foreign. So he needs to get back to her and, and get moving. Um, he says he, he plans to go thank the folks in the village and in the cottages and, and then he's going to get away. And Edward says, you know, could you could you just spend an afternoon and meet the electors in Millport? He says, now, they're my tenants, so it's only a formality, but but he really wants to do this thing decently. And, and O'Brien writes, then, and this is Edward, seeing Jack's look of astonishment, he went on, I meant to offer you the seat. Do you, by God, cried Jack, and realizing the extent, the importance, the consequence, of what his cousin had just said, he went on, I think that amazingly handsome in you, sir. I take it more kindly than I can say. He shook Mr. Norton's thin old hand and sat staring for a while. Possibilities that he hardly dared name 
flashed and glowed in his mind like a fleet in action. Oh my gosh. Oh, isn't it wonderful? And that, it's funny. I remember uh, we had an earlier revelation to Stephen by Sir Joseph Blaine that there might be this great opportunity for him to go do this work in South America. And Stephen said, my heart would beat to quarters at the prospect. Right. And now, <laughs> Jack's face is glowing like a fleet in action. We're using these lovely you know, metaphors of naval action to, to, to reflect the urgency and the spirit of what's, what's, what this means for these people. And this is, this is a really great moment for Jack, Mike. This is just wonderful. It really is. I mean, Jack's reaction to this, do you by God, to me, it's like, you know, it's like Christmas come early to a seven-year-old or yeah, I'd say yeah. even to a 70-year-old. And it's, yeah. you know, I can really relate. And and I I had to keep this on rewind a couple of times to listen to the way Patrick Tall would perform Jack's reaction here because it's, you know, he really captures that. Oh my gosh, you know, you just made my dreams come true. What a wonderful moment. It's great. And it's funny, I it's one of those things that I've enjoyed rediscovering as we've done this reread. I, you know, I'd always remembered the, the off hats moment in, uh, in reverse of the medal, but I'd kind of forgotten just what a punch this moment packed. So it's really, really great to have found it again and to, to have seen all the way through this book, how Jack's being rebuilt as a character, having been so fairly thoroughly demolished in the previous two or three books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they, we still have to sort of shape out the terms of the deal, if you like here. Um, Edward says that he hopes, on the one hand, that this will strengthen Jack's hand in dealing with the government and uh, a member of parliament, they say, can bite as well as bark. And Jack agrees, saying he carries guns. Oh, these are guns that clearly General Aubrey had fired rather at random and rather to his own misfortune um, in the house. So we've also got to figure out how Jack is going to perform. Jack gives the story of the ministry official coming as he said, asking him to crawl on his face and request a pardon, either saying or implying that if the pardon was granted, he might be put back on the list. Jack had told this person, Soames, that asking for forgiveness for a crime meant that a crime had been committed and he did not believe he had committed a crime. And this is a lovely summary, Jack's own summary of his attitude to Soames. In effect, I said, Dirty dogs ate hungry puddings. Uh, that is to say, hungry dogs ate dirty puddings. But in this case, either I was not hungry enough or the pudding was too dirty, and I begged to be excused. That's Mike. This is <laughs> this is a really nice, really nice Aubreyism here. Did, did do we think he got the proverb right in the end? Well, I, I think he did. Hungry dogs eat dirty puddings here, right? Um, you know, he, he mangled it around. But then in his own mind, you know, like you say, and he, he wasn't hungry enough or the pudding was too dirty. And, you know, he was not going to set aside his honor and request this pardon. Now, interestingly, there's another version of this proverb, which is scornful dogs eat dirty puddings. Oh, which, okay. and, and, and in some cultures, it's taken to mean the same thing. You know, they might say in an emergency, men will do things that they would scorn to do in easy circumstances. But in other cultures, it means, you know, for example, always look at yourself before criticizing others or don't behave as if you're better than others or you may fall and be the laughing stock. So, I, you know, in the midst of all these reversals here, I wouldn't put it past O'Brien to give us this sort of double meaning here. Yeah, I think Jack continues on in this discussion with Brother Edward having just talked about himself, the way he characterizes Soames. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Having said no, he, he reports, having said no to the offer, Jack thought he had destroyed his chances forever. However, he thinks, 
if he'd been a member of parliament, they probably would not have made the offer in quite the same way that they would have tried a different approach after Jack had said no. Edward agrees and says, this is where the deal comes in, I think, especially yeah. if Jack turned out to be a steady middle of the road church and state kind of member, as he's sure Jack would be, in parenthesis, unlike Jack's father. Right. Um, but even without being a member, cousin Edward says that that was no way for them to speak to a man of Jack's reputation. And Jack is willing to see the other side of it. He says, I don't think he meant it ill, but he is one of those people in Whitehall. And I have always noticed that they really do believe they belong to a much higher order, as though they had been born on the flag officer's list. <laughs> Which is a nice little reflection from Jack there. So, And he and Edward agree to head over to Millport to meet the electors and the Burgesses. Um, Edward says that he hopes that this boring country politics isn't going to be a burden a sacrifice and jack says sacrifice cousin edward you could ask a very very great deal more than that upon my word and honor i should give my right arm to be back on the navy list or even halfway there yeah but i tell you he's used that line so many times that i think i remember worrying that jack's about to lose his arm yeah, <laughs> at some point. right well the oh. chapter's not over yet mike let's see what happens yeah exactly that's a good point well you know, back at the grave. So we're, you know, switching scenes again. And uh, O'Brien tells us that Padine has really benefited from his friendship with Bonden. And he and Stephen are sitting there looking at Stephen's sea chest, which has now been packed up beautifully. And Padine has, you know, all these diagonal ropes and knots. The thing is just perfect. Um, Stephen, we learned, is sailing on to Sweden alone. And, and Padine's going to go on with a surprise and Stephen asks Padine if he's remembered to pack his draft, that is his laudanum. Now, he still doesn't realize that Padine is an addict and would never forget the laudanum for him or for Stephen. So Padine has, in fact, packed it, but he's diluted it so much that O'Brien tells us that Stephen taking it at night is now little more than an act of faith. It's kind of going through the motions, right? And fascinatingly, you know, here we said it's little more than an act of faith. And Padine says he's packed it and wrapped it like a relic, a holy object, you know, which which clearly it is for both of them now. Ah, Mrs. Broad walks in and she has two stacks of Dr. Matron's frilled shirts, all freshly laundered. And the frill has been crimped with a hot iron, just like Mrs. Matron likes them, <laughs> likes them for Stephen. And she tells Padine very loudly, we have this many times in the canon, you know, you know, the loud and slow talking, exactly where to pack them in Stephen's chest for the voyage. Now, when she leaves, Stephen scrambles around the room to find a place to hide them. You know, and I think they're both thinking, you know, Stephen's thinking, I don't want these fancy shirts. And, and probably both of them thinking, we're not opening that sea chest again. And they settle for the top of this very tall wardrobe. So... I think Padine is standing up on a chair or something. Stephen's handing the shirts up to him. There's dust flying, everything. Stephen's giving him pages of the Times to wrap these shirts in and keep them hidden. And as they're doing this, Lucy, you know, one of the housemaids, it's, it's got a bit of a fancy on Stephen, I think, too, comes in with an express for Stephen, but she catches them in the act. And, of course, they both look absolutely guilty, Stephen says, you know, oh, we're just setting them there for now. And, and please don't mention this to Mrs. Broad. And Lucy says that she's no telltale, 
but she admonishes Padin to get all the dust off his hands, you know, while he's touching these clean shirts here. It's it's a very nice moment. It's a very nice reminder of what a bachelor Stephen is and just how much he needs Diana. All right, it's, it's another little facet of all the different ways in which he needs Diana. Um, an express has arrived. That's an, 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 what would what you and I would call a telegram or a instant message these days. Right. Um, the express is from Jack. And Jack is telling Stephen in this message about getting the parliamentary seat from Cousin Edward, about meeting the electors who said they would have voted for Jack even without Cousin Edward because of the victories in St. Martin and in the Azores. The ministry had tried to head this whole thing off, had sent Cousin Edward a message about candidates for a new member. But Cousin Edward said, I'm already committed to Jack. You're too late. So the early bird catches the worm here. As this message goes on, Jack says he's back home, telling Sophie the news that Henage Dundas had come to see him with a message from the First Lord. Since Jack is now a member, Melville might be able dum, 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 to restore Jack to the list by beer motion, in parenthesis, with both of his arms still attached. Right. <laughs> um, if Jack could assure the ministry that he would not violently and systematically oppose the ministry whilst not asking that he support them through thick and thin, merely saying, help us on the major things here. Um, Jack said he would likely never address the House on anything other than a naval matter and would always be happy to support Lord Melville. This is this is a very easy deal. He's getting very, a very light whip, I think. Frank Urquhart would say this is this is a promise that's being extracted very, very lightly. Nice. <laughs> but never mind. Um, Hennage told Jack that the First Lord has said it would take a few months to restore Jack. Um, they would hold the official announcement until there was some other victory. But Jack would meanwhile go on a special list with seniority restored in the meantime. I'm like, this is, this is all of Jack's wishes, all of Jack's Christmases coming at once here. Absolutely. Jack and Sophie, we are here, are elated. They want to share the good news with everybody, especially with Stephen. They say that if the Express had happened not to reach Stephen before he headed off, Jack says, I'll tell you the news in Stephen when I pick you up after running over to Riga for cordage, spars, and Paul Davy. Paul Davy being the, the coarse canvas that they use for making sails. Yeah. So Stephen's reading this Express, and Mrs. Broad comes in. Um, Stephen, I think a little worried, but Mrs. Broad does not look at the cabinet. He hasn't been ratted out. She tells him that Sir Joseph Blaine has called on him and wants to know if you know if he's available. And Stephen says, absolutely. Blaine is thrilled to have caught him. He thought Stephen would have left earlier in the day. And Stephen says, no, 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 the mail doesn't leave until 6.30. And you know, Blaine thought he, he would certainly have taken a chase, but yeah, Stephen says, no, they're, they're way too expensive. So Blaine offers to save Stephen the quote-unquote monstrous expense of the mail. I think Sir Joseph Blaine is poking a little fun at him and <laughs> thinking, you know, you're rich. This is, you know, why are you riding the mail and all this discomfort of traveling in that coach and <laughs> all these transfers? You're just going to be body and soul worn out. And he says he's going to save Stephen all that by putting him on the netly, a cutter, in the morning, that will transfer him to the, and in parentheses, horrible old leopard, right? So, and the leopard, he says, is now a transport ship, and it, he could, you know, it could drop him right off in Stockholm. So, Blaine says that he's looked for Stephen. He went to Black's, the British Museum, to Somerset House, and it, he wishes that he had started the grapes and hadn't had to thrust his way through slow moving hordes of bumpkins. Blaine says, London is filled with bumpkins at this time of the year, and they stare about them like oxen. 
So <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, bar humbug, right? Bar humbug, yeah. Nobody wants to go to New York when the New Jersey people are in town. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Here we go. Out of towners, don't you hate them? <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm thinking how many times was I one of those bumpkins that Blaine would have run into in London? Sorry, sorry, Sir Joseph Wright, staring about me like a moron. Oh, well, I would think that uh, Blaine's a pretty happy guy here, right? But for more reasons than one. Yeah. So he's, first of all, he's delighted to have found Matcha. And he says, it would have put me out of temper for a month to have lost my message. So he's managed to hand on, hand on this message timely. He's caught Stephen. He's also got the chance to share a bit of culture that's going on, culture that's going to be important in this book. He's delighted to invite Stephen to come and see Figaro. He means the marriage of Figaro, the Mozart opera, with him that night. And as Blaine talks about the cast of Figaro, Stephen, it says, perceived that he was cherishing the secret of some other piece of news, and presently it came out. Blaine tells him that he wants to send Stephen away with an easy mind. Gazing affectionately at Stephen, he tells him that Jack is to become a member of Parliament, which Stephen already knew. Right. Um, he's never heard of such an act of magnanimity by a borough owner before, especially coming from the man who had put Jack's father in Parliament and presumably suffered all the blowback from, from General Aubrey's antics. Blaine says that this is exactly the right timing and it makes all the difference for Jack. And I, I, I can empathize a lot with Blaine here. He must have been feeling pretty wretched when it turned out that the meal and then the approach from Soames had gone bad. That was all pretty much Blaine's doing. Um, Blaine himself, he says, had searched for a pocket borough for sale to help Jack before, but there was none on the market. But then here is one, as it were, poured into his lap as a result of the death of General Aubrey. Stephen says that that's not quite the correct <laughs> polite expression. And Sir Joseph says, well, Lord Melville has sent Henry Dundas down to talk with Jack sailor to sailor, hopes that Jack won't be too hard on Lord Melville and his colleagues. This is all re repeating the deal that Jack has already really squared away with Cousin Edward. Um, Stephen, who doesn't tell Blaine that he already knows this, says he's quite certain that Dundas is going to be a great negotiator and that it will all be successful. And asks Blaine to tell his Whitehall colleagues that if they want to be certain that Jack should not embarrass them or oppose them, they should send him away on very, very long voyages, particularly South America. <laughs> he goes on to say that there's, there's the Malay sultans to be dealt with who are worrying the East India Company. There's finishing, finishing up the work of Captain Cook and Vancouver. Vancouver, the sailor whose name was given to Vancouver, the city in Canada. Um, and now Stephen is waxing a little bit philosophical here. And what about, he says, the untouched entomology of the Celebes Islands? And this is this is very fanciful by Stephen, but everybody's in really, really high spirits. So, Mike, maybe this is a good time for our listeners to spin the globe that no doubt sits upon your desk right. and uh, find the Celebes and find all the other great places, maybe where George Vancouver sailed to and ponder where you might want to collect your specimens from. And we'll be right back after this break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. Um, hopefully you've been taking a look at the globe. You might have noticed all the places where Blaine and Stephen want to collect specimens from. And maybe you've had a chance to ponder on all the places in the world where we have listeners. 
Well, we are going to have a holiday special get together with our Patreon supporters in a few weeks time. So if you're not already with us on Patreon, we'd love to have you with us. There's going to be a great chance to get together with me and Mike and maybe one or two of our past guests and just have a chat and catch up with each other as supporters and lovers of the podcast. So we hope that you might take advantage of that. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole and if you don't want to do that then do please still follow us on facebook.com forward slash lovers hole or follow us on twitter at whole lovers we'd love to have you as part of the conversation we join Stephen on the leopard in the channel just northwest of the london river moving past the swin in the fog now the leopard had been rushed to sea and at first Stephen didn't even recognize her she she'd hogged that's you know kind of bent down in the front and back from her cargo she has a smaller 32-gun frigate's mast, not her original 50-gun mast. Her cannons are gone. Her paintwork's a disgrace. She's dirty, unkempt, and unhappy. And, and this all contrasts with what Stephen is starting to realize is some fond memories that he had of her, especially as he enters the wardroom. And all of this kind of degradation, this turnaround for the leopard, kind of feeds Stephen's premonition of disaster, of personal catastrophe that he seems kind of looming on the horizon here. Um, especially, you know, even when he came aboard, the Leopard's captain and pilot were arguing, three officers, you know, were lashing the men at the capstan bars. And 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 again, this is, you know, really Stephen's kind of thinking, no, it's all gonna go wrong from here. Ah, and it's it's really sad this uh realization that Stephen gets that he's aboard the physical vessel of the leopard but he's not really aboard the vessel that was a community in a and a a family home he realizes as he sits down to supper that the wardroom is divided into two hostile groups there's the master's friends and the purser's friends um there are some passengers in a third group who are of no interest to the sailors but are used as go-betweens to pass kind of hostile messages between gritted teeth between the other two groups this is how Stephen hears in this conversation that the leopard is going inside the hour and the haddock bank to avoid an American ship. These are shallows in the North Sea. They're going up the East Coast. This is where lots of the fishing grounds are. The water is shallow, and that's going to be important. Um, between the shoals and avoiding all the other shipping in the fog, they're having a tough time of it. And Stephen goes back and has the chance to relax in what had once been Babington's cot when the leopard had carried them to the Spice Islands by way of the Antarctic many, many voyages ago. And O'Brien brings us into this moment with Stephen. He says, Stephen's been at sea for so many years that he found rocking in his cot the most comfortable attitude and motion known to man, the best for either sleep or reflection, in spite of the sound of the ships working, the shouts and footsteps overhead, and on this occasion, the thump of the signal gun. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, you never think about Stephen as being, you know, a sailor. He's always, you know, kind of falling between ships and everything. But we got a couple instances in in this description here and a little bit later where O'Brien's saying, yeah, he actually, he still may not know everything, but he's starting to, you know, he wakes up and he can tell, you know, the the, uh, the watch has changed. He can tell that the speed has changed or the winds are different, which is fascinating. Well, at this moment, he's, you know, he's rocking in his cot. He's kind of composing his mind to go to sleep. He's taken his draft. And he, first, he starts by thinking about Jack's 
prosperous affairs. And, you know, he's thinking to himself, boy, this is all going to go great, short of a very hideous mischance. And, and he, he kind of pulls his, his hand out from under his cover and crosses himself. But he's thinking, you know, uh, short of that, Jack will soon be reinstated to the list. And he imagines the voyages that they may go on. He remembers the voyages that they've already made. And even the delights of Desolation Island, where the leopard had taken them before. He remembers his evening with Sir Joseph and the dinner and the wine. And Sir Joseph saying retirement to the country, to gardening and etymology did not answer. Attempted once, never again. Night thoughts in an unoccupied mind at his age with his experience and his trade behind him were too disagreeable. A pervading sense of guilt, though each separate case could be satisfactorily answered. Present activity and the busy persecution of the enemy was the only answer. So this is kind of a fascinating thought here on the life of and, and perhaps the afterlife of an intelligence agent, you know, in the mind of Sir Joseph Blaine. And, and of course, immediately has us thinking, and perhaps in the mind of Stephen, if he ever retired from this life here. And then Stephen thinks back to the opera that they had visited to. And in all matters, music, Ian, I've got to turn turn this over to you. Oh, thank you. Well, we've we talked about this before. We've talked about this, I think, in our Crossing the Line episode on uh, on music. This is a spot on reference for O'Brien. This the the story of the marriage of Figaro is a story of a marriage almost torn apart by misunderstanding, mistaken identity, and and partly attempted botched betrayal of marriage vows. And it finishes. It culminates with a reconciliation. Culminates with a reconciliation between the wronged Contessa and the uh, the supplicant Count, Count Almaviva. So Stephen's remembering the performance that he had been to with Sir Joseph. And but by the way, this is another little echo. Um, we had already had a recommendation from Sir Joseph Blaine to go see The Marriage of Figaro. So we remember way back in The Surgeon's Mate, Sir Joseph had recommended that Stephen should look in at Covent Garden. He talked about the young person singing Carabino, a truly angelic voice. And his recommendation again in this book is to go see Figaro. This time Stephen does go and see it. This person, Carabino, we had we learn had androgynous perfection in breeches because the part of Carabino is a boy part. It's played by what's called a breeches soprano, a lady who plays boys' roles wearing, as it were, breeches. And they've clearly been to the opera and they've clearly enjoyed that performance and they said it was a brilliant performance from the first notes of the overture to what Stephen always looked upon as the true end. Before the hurly-burly of jovial peasants, the part where from a dead silence, the dumbfounded count sings Contessa Perdono, Perdono, Perdono with such an infinite subtlety of intonation. He repeated it inwardly several times, together with the Contessa's exquisite reply and the crowd's words to the effect that now they could all live happily ever after. Ah, tutti contenti saremo così. But, we learn, never quite to his satisfaction.
So he's talking about this very, very short little interlude in the final, final scene of the final act of Figaro, where exactly as he says, the Count and Countessa are being reconciled to each other. It's curious, though, Mike, that Stephen says he's tried to sing it to himself, never quite to his satisfaction. Yeah. So probably a couple of different meanings there. My count is, forgive me, is, is that what's not to Stephen's satisfaction or the crowd singing about happily ever after? You know, my suspicion is that it might be neither or both. Yeah, I think yes. that what he's really thinking about is the countess's reply. The countess, after the count, you know, sort of says, you know, forgive me, the countess replies that that she will right that she will that she's you know she's kinder she's gentler and without that forgiveness there's no happiness for the count no happily ever from the crowd um without this exquisite reply so perhaps stephen can't get the intonation just right but i suspect that what's not quite to his satisfaction is the idea that his countess diane will be as kind and forgiving as the count in the opera It's, it's a really lovely moment. Be- beautiful bits of Patrick O'Brien ambiguity about all of that. Right. And that's the, that's the power of music as well. You know, it puts you back into a frame of mind and you can't quite work out where it's going to take you next. It's sort of a great piece of music as well. Because the, the, the end of the story of Marriage of Figaro is not, they all lived happily ever after. They all had the wreckage of the marriage between the Count and the Countess to take care of. Right. So Stephen wakes, he's still singing this final chorus line, a tutti contenti saremo così, then let us all be happy. He's singing it repeatedly mechanically in his mind. In his sleep, says O'Brien, that earlier premonition of extreme unhappiness had risen up and now it occupied him entirely. It now appeared evident to him that his visit to Sweden must be seen as odious importunity. It was true he was carrying back her blue diamond that she valued extremely, but it could have been sent by a messenger. It could have been sent through the legation. 
And this bringing it in person might be looked upon as a singularly ungenerous demand for gratitude, necessarily self-defeating as far as the essence was concerned. And Mike, I'm reading this thinking, come on, Stephen, get a clue. You know, right. so, to reuse a phrase I used earlier on, you can't be holier than the Pope himself. Just go, nice. give, the, give the girl a jewel and say, please, and say, forgive me. Anyhow, he thinks that we've learned before that since Diana might not be attached to Yagiello, as Blaine had said, that's good because Stephen actually likes Yagiello and doesn't want to have an, a duel. He doesn't want to have what O'Brien calls a bloody meeting. But that doesn't mean Diana's not attached to someone. She's very passionate. She attaches herself passionately, quite readily. Although in their relationship, he thinks the passion had been on his side. And she had a liking, a friendship and affection for him, per- perhaps was only passionate about his supposed infidelity. And Mike, oh, I, I wish he'd get get done with the introspection and just go and see the woman. Well, I know, I know. It's it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm reading this little Christmas novella, a romance, Christmas by Gaslight. And it's said in 1861, it's that same thing. You see all these characters with all these suppositions about each other. And, oh, this kills me sometimes. However, Stephen does have one very interesting kind of realization about Diana. And, and I think it's true. Um, you know, he says that he realizes that there are things that, you know, she doesn't know about him. He doesn't know about her, but he's very sure, O'Brien writes, that her love of high expensive living was far more theoretical than real. Certainly, she hated being pinched and confined, but she hated being commanded even more. She might love careless extravagance, but she would do little or nothing to come by the means of it, certainly nothing against her inclination. She valued nothing so much as independence. Nothing was more valuable to her than her independence. What had he to offer in exchange for even a very little part of it, for the appearance of even a little part of it? Money, of course. But, of course, in this context, money was neither here nor there. If kissing did not go by favor, it was not kissing at all. What else had he to offer her? He might have 10000 a year in a deer park, at least a potential deer park, but by no stretch of the imagination could he be called a handsome husband, not even a tolerable husband. He had little conversation and no charm. He had offended her very publicly and very deeply, or so she and her friends believed, which came to the same thing. Wow. Wow. It's, he's, he's going deep into the, this is the O'Brien psychology of, uh, of relationships between men and women. There's a, for me, this is a bit of a four echo as well of Clarissa Oaks. Nice. And, uh, and you know, this, this point about kissing being, uh, if it's not going, if it's not done sincerely, it's not kissing at all. I think that's a really, really fascinating little bit of premonition there. Nice. So Stevens wrestling with this, he becomes convinced that his premonition is true, that his journey will fail. There is an unreasoning part of his mind, though, that really wants this to succeed. He's physically distressed. We get this image of Stephen rocking back and forth until, the text says, against all good sense, all resolution and fortitude, he repeats his night draft. And in my parenthesis here, Mike, he repeats his pointless, watered down, <laughs> fictional <Right>. night draft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some some you know high level opium eater is now having a second shot of brandy before going to bed. This is not yeah, going to exactly. do it for you, Stephen. Sorry, bud. 
So surprise, surprise, he wakes up mentally exhausted and has a hard time then understanding the cry of the steward who says, come on, sir, we'm sunk. Stephen finally recognises the noise, the noise of the ship grinding on sand and says, sunk. And it's not quite as it seems. The steward explains they've run onto the tail of a bank called the Grab. And if we go on cannonade.net, you can see that the Grab in North Sea geography is just uh, east of Skegness in Lincolnshire and just north of, uh, of Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. So it's a fair way off the English coast. I've got to say, Mike, given what's about to happen to the crew and the passengers, I don't think the Grab is really where they can be because the Grab is a long way. It's like tens and tens and tens of miles offshore. But they've run onto one of these shallow banks in the North Sea. We heard earlier on that the skipper was going inshore of some of the banks to avoid an American. So here, what always happens to an ill-fated ship in a Patrick O'Brien book is right. she runs aground. So the captain wants the passengers to go to shore with Mr. Roke, who's you know kind of rowing out for help here. Have somebody come back to uh, uh, you know bring the ship in and you know get them back ready to go again. But five minutes after they leave the ship, the boat that the passengers and Mr. Roke are in starts taking on water here. And Mr. Rowe continuously tells Stephen to jog the loo, jog the loo. And, and this young mate bends over Stephen and starts working the pump. And, you know, Stephen takes very kindly to him. This young mate recommends his auntie's in, the feathers in Manton. And Stephen asks him if he knows the Reverend Heath there. And he says, of course, everybody knows Parson Heath. Um, you know, we all bring him our unusual specimens, you know, when we come in from sea. So it's an odd, odd situation, is it? I didn't know quite how to take this, the grounding of the leopard, what plot point it served. It does get Stephen to go ashore and spend some time with a vicar who can give him specimens. That turns out to be actually pretty inconsequential. Maybe there's a bit of a contrast here with the noble and heroic conduct of the crew of the leopard when she grounded on an iceberg um, several books ago versus the rather ignominious conduct of the crew and the passengers rowing ashore when she hits a sandbank in the North Sea and the contrast between her fate as a Royal Navy ship and her rather sort of slovenly fate as a as a cargo ship. Anyhow, we get to switch away from the point of view of Stephen and rowing ashore. We're back with the Aubreys, and they're in Shelmerston. They're staying at the Williams Head, and Mike, I'm sure that the name of the inn, being the same name as Sophie's mother, um, is not entirely a coincidence. And we're with Sophie. We said earlier on that we've enjoyed the restoration of Jack's character. So this is Sophie in a whole new light. She's reading out a long list of supplies to Mr. Standish, the surprise's new and inexperienced purser. They're both doing the calculations and Sophie is checking his work. Surprise has obtained a number of fancy things. She's obtained new manila rigging. She's got a gold leaf on the figurehead and the scrolls. The figurehead has been touched up to look actually surprised, we learn. And Sophie is there with an eye over all of this. She sees her children running by and thinks that with their time in Shelmerston, among a whole community of adoring privateersmen, stuffed with sweetmeats and nips of sugared gin, loaded with knives and pole parrots and shrunken heads from foreign parts, they were in a fair way to being ruined. But I, I think the tone of this says she doesn't really regret it. And I, I love the idea of Sophie in Shelmerston as kind of the pirate queen of all right. she surveys. I think that's great. Yeah. Right. And so we've got, you know, she's talking about the kids here. We, you know, we learned that Bondin and Killick are supposed to be looking after the children, but they're way too busy getting ready because the Aubreys are about to go to dinner with the Admiral. So they haven't been paying attention to the children. The kids are on the top of this four foot wall, kind of looking out 
onto the water and George comes up from behind them and pushes them off and then runs for the ship before they can catch up with them. A couple of the women from the town pick up the girls and dust them off. And, and they tell them, as O'Brien writes, not to call out after their brother with words such as sod, swab, and horse son beast, because their mama would not like it. And, and in fact, O'Brien tells us their mama does not like it, and she would particularly not like it if she realized that she could actually, you know, these kids could now switch back and forth between the lower deck language and regular talk anytime they wanted to. And Sophie confides to Mrs. Martin, which is kind of neat. This is, I think, the first time we hear Mrs. Martin actually speaking in the books. We see her that, you know, although Sophie says she'll be heartbroken when the surprise sails, that she's a little worried that much more time in town is going to ruin her children. And Mrs. Martin assures her that, you know, it's probably like only two more days and the kids are going to be fine. Yeah. (sighs) So... This episode of Chumberston has been great, but Sophie is rather low to see that Jack is leaving and low to be leaving Chumberston herself. Again, I think that the pirate queen is kind of enjoying her, her queendom. The weather's been beautiful. It'd been unlike anything she'd ever seen, like a pirate base with the civilist of pirates. Um, she could walk anywhere with no worries and was treated wonderfully. She being the wife of the most deeply admired, most deeply respected man in the port, the commander of that fabulous gold mine, The Surprise. And this is a nice little touch here. Um, she notices the ladies of the night. The text says the whores and demi-whores fascinated her, and she thanked them for their kindness to her children. She loved the entire town. And th- this is a broad-minded side of Sophie that we haven't seen very much of before. And very unlike her mom, who Sophie oh, tends to be a little bit like, right? It, it, it's staying in the Williams Inn. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're about to head to dinner, and they're getting there in the inn's carriage this incredible um captured carriage and jack and sophie both regret that stephen's not with them since the admiral that they're going to dine with has invited the new physician of the fleet but they reflect that they're probably glad that stephen's in sweden by now so it turns out that stephen had actually only gone 30 miles towards sweden since he'd left when the surprise finally put to sea, the leopard itself had only just lost sight of manson church so stephen's been ashore this time um, he'd been glad to spend some time ashore with Parson Heath. They'd watched birds. They watched roughs in their mating rituals, which was a powerful instinct, as the Reverend Heath had said to Maturin. But they watched another more powerful instinct. And I guess O'Brien is pointing this out to us. In spite of total neglect from their mates, the eagerness of predators whose living depended on their efficiency and some exceptionally bitter weather, Stephen and Heath saw three of these brave birds bring off their entire clutch while a fourth began hatching, just as a choir boy messenger came to say that the leopard was on the point of moving out of the yard. And this underlines this really nice point about the growth and the security of family and the strength of women caring for a family, and surely that's um, going to be in Stephen's mind as he heads towards Sweden and head towards Diana. Yeah, these these independent women. So here's this you know this attraction of males for females, but mm, a much more exceptional and powerful <laughs> instinct is women and uh, you know the independent women here. Well, back on board the leopard, the crew learns that Stephen used to be a leopard because the canvas that was wrapped around his sea chest comes loose, and they see the names of the ships that. He had been on. They didn't even realize that he was in the Navy before. And and this previously very rude Mr. Roke says at dinner, so it seems you was a leopard, sir. Just so, says Stephen. Why did you never tell us when you came aboard? You never asked. 
He did not like to show away, said the purser. And they pondered on this. And then the surgeon said, you must be the doctor Maturin of the diseases of semen. And Stephen bows. So, you know, they, they think this is just like kind of, you know, the Navy not to tell them when somebody of quality is coming aboard. They think he's just, quote unquote, sort of another merchant. But um, Stephen, you know, then gets quizzed by the crew of the Leopard. And it was still a man of war then. And Stephen tells them the story of, you know, sinking the Boxham Kite, this Dutch yeah. 74. And they are blown away by this, you know, a 50-gun ship sinking a 74, and they can't get enough of it. So, you know, they are, you know, while they love to hear about Aubrey and the time there, what they really want to hear about is this Leopard, their ship, that this tangible kind of glory that reflects on them. So Stephen is invited to tell this tale all over the ship and is invited to dine in the captain's cabin and point this all out. Thursday morning, Stephen comes on deck and sees the captain and the master arguing about what they think is a potential American privateer hull up on the starboard quarter. They trade blame back and forth for not being away from these waters. Um, Stephen looks at this sail through a borrowed telescope and tells them, with some confidence, this is the surprise. And they now defer to him. He's the, the oldest leopard of them all. And so they lie to, they heave to, so that Stephen can cross over to the surprise. And we get this nice little reunion. We get Stephen and Jack back together. I, I'd almost hardly noticed that they're in separate ships on separate voyages up to this point. So they're back together. And Stephen notices that Jack's face possesses a shining inner life. The strange, almost paralytic deadness that had hung over it in repose these last months was now quite gone. His had been a naturally cheerful countenance until all joy was driven out of it, a fine, ruddy face whose lines and creases had been formed by laughter and smiling. Now it was essentially the same again, ruddier, if anything, and lit by eyes that seemed an even brighter blue. And Stephen we learned, felt better just talking with Jack, chatting about the House of Commons and looking over the new surprise, and remained delighted until he realised just how rapidly their high speed had brought him close into Stockholm, and the anxiety begins to surface again. Jack knows why Stephen is going to Sweden, and, and he watches, you know, Stephen's face is looking wretchedly ill and 10 years old older. But Jack's thinking, you know, I can't speak about Diana unless Stephen brings her up. Uh, and, but he does realize that he's been talking too much about himself. And so he decides he'd switch the topic and he's searching for something to talk about. And he says, ah, you know, there's Stanish, by the way. We've got this new purser's inexperience. Sophie checks his sum. He's never been to sea, but he's a gentleman-like fellow and a friend of Martin's, and he plays a fine fiddle. And, and we learn that Stanish's father had died a lieutenant. So he comes from a naval family. He'd always wanted to go his, to sea, but his friends persuaded him to study for the church where a cousin could provide for him. But but he actually, you know, while he was getting his theological education, he was still, you know, on about ships and boating and classics. And when it's time to become a parson, he reads through the Anglican Church's 39 articles and realizes he, he can't quite agree to all of them in good conscience. So, you know, he doesn't do that. And now, still wanting to go to sea, the only job that he could get would be a purser, but he doesn't have the money to put up the required 400-pound bond. And Jack decides, you know, hey, he's got a fiddle. He plays it. We'll waive the bond. 
and suggests that they try a little quartet with Martin and Standish that night. And Stephen decides, well, you know, wait a minute, I want to practice my cello first. So, Ian, let me turn over. You know, again, we're in the realm of music. Stephen's going to practice his cello. He closes the door, and the after part of the ship we learn is filled with a deep roaring DS ere that went on and on, quite startling the quarterdeck. Now, on the one hand, Dies Irae is part of the Latin text for the Requiem Mass. But Dies Irae also has a very, very familiar tune to anybody who's ever, well, first, certainly to composers who've ever studied anything to do with plain chant. Um, it's a Gregorian chant for this prayer Dies Irae that says the, the Day of Wrath. Any of the big Requiem Masses that you might know, the Verdi Requiem, the Mozart Requiem, um, have this Dies Irae prayer in it. But this there's a particular setting of it, the Gregorian chant, that appears all the way through classical music. If you've heard the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, if you've heard Liszt's Totentanz, then both of those have the Dies Irae in it. And you can hear this pattern. Da, 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 da. Now, this pattern also appears as a death motif in lots and lots of film score music. If you've ever watched The Shining, if you've ever watched Star Wars, if you've ever watched Jaws, the Jaws theme arguably is an inversion of the Dies Irae. There are loads of instances of it in film music. So this is a pretty strong premonition from Stephen. He's playing something. He goes back to his cabin. The thing that he picks up to play is an ancient motif to do with death. Huh. Yeah. Much later then, he does get to pull himself together and come back and play with the quartet. The cabin sings again, we learn, this time with none of the same terrible conviction, more quietly, more gently together as the four of them made their tentative way through Mozart in D major. And Mike, I really like the idea that this Mozart in D major could be K575. Um, it's beautiful. We'll play a little bit of it right now. Uh, which, by the way, is on the first ever CD of Mozart quartets that I ever bought about 30 years ago. Um, and it's beautiful. So we're almost back to a kind of normality. Mike, Jack and Stephen are back aboard ship together. They're playing music together. They're playing Mozart and singing plain chant together. How do we think Stephen's doing amongst all of this? Well, you know, it's interesting. The next morning, Stephen, you know, he's got red eyes because you know, he's following that score in the dim light. But... You know, as he goes to bed, he's so refreshed by getting together with everybody that he plunges into a deep, deep sleep with very vivid dreams and is, is sound asleep when Jack shakes him awake. And Jack says that the winds are preventing them from getting into Stockholm. And Stephen could go in the pilot galley, which is alongside, or he could come along to Riga with them and then they'll try to get back into Stockholm on the way back. And Stephen says, no. You know, I'll take the pilot, and, and he sends for some hot water to wash and shave. Huh. Now, sharpening his razor, Stephen looks at his hand, and she sees how much it's shaking. We had somebody's hand shaking with food on a fork earlier on. Now we've got Stephen's hand shaking with the razor in his hand, which really sounds grim. He reaches for the laudanum bottle. He drops it, and the bottle shatters. The cabin smells like brandy. And again, Mike, I'm leaning in here going, come on, Stephen, get the clue. The reason it smells like brandy could be because 
Anyway, uh, he recognizes the contradiction between the smell of brandy and the effect that it has on him, but he hasn't really got the mental uh, fortitude, the mental energy to resolve it. Rather than go below and get more, he resolves that he's going to go ashore and buy some laudanum from the Swedes, and damn it, he's going to have a shave there as well. On deck, Jack asks him to give Cousin Diana our love. Stephen thanks Jack and says he will. This wind never lasts, said Jack, handing him over the side, where Bondon and Place eased him down into the boat. We shall be back from Riga in no time at all. And that, Mike, is the end of chapter eight. Boy, I really love this chapter, but at the very end, you know, I'm sitting here wondering, what are we to make of this? You know, Stephen just seems to be all over the place and, and not much of it good. There's there's omens and premonitions and funeral masses all in the midst of Jack's great happiness. So, you know, this real contrast, as we've been saying, between Stephen and Jack here. Well, Mike, all this yet to be resolved. We want to get back with Stephen. We hope it's all going to come right. I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say next time to just a little more Patrick O'Brien? I would like that of all things. less than 84 episodes to come up with an episode without any bloopers in it but here we are don't worry i'm sure they'll be back soon <laughs>